There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father, and refuse thy name. Or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Shall I hear more, or shall I speak of this? Tis but thy name that is my enemy. <laughs> thou art thyself, though, not a Montague. <sighs> what is Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose. By any other name would smell as sweet. Hello and welcome to... Plays the Thing, Act Two of Romeo and Juliet. That was the actress Olivia Hussey from Franco Zeffirelli's 1968 film, Romeo and Juliet, performing the balcony scene from Act Two. I am Tim McIntosh. I'm Heidi White. I'm Sarah Jane Bentley. And Heidi, Sarah Jane, welcome to the show. One of the most famous acts in Shakespeare. And we're beginning today with what is maybe the most misunderstood line in all of Shakespeare's corpus, wherefore art thou Romeo? I think everybody knows these lines. They're just so good. It's We talked last week about how um, Romeo and Juliet might be a little bit of a victim of its own success. Everybody knows Romeo and Juliet. And, you know, people kind of tend, sometimes people kind of tend to poo-poo it. It's just not that. It's not, it's not Shakespeare's greatest work. It's not Lear. It's not, you know, it's not Macbeth. And maybe Lost in the Familiarity is just what a wonderful play it is. And I think Lost in the Familiarity is this line. Everybody knows the line. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? But very few people know what the second part of that line means, wherefore art thou Romeo? In fact, I was talking to my mom this week and I said, mom, what does wherefore art thou Romeo mean? 
And do you guys know what she said? You probably do. She didn't, she didn't get it right. I was a little disappointed. <laughs> she said, it means, where are you? Mm. I was like, it doesn't mom. It doesn't mean that. So Sarah Jane, tell us what it means. Wherefore art thou Romeo? Tell us what it means. Well, it doesn't mean Romeo. I'm trying to geographically locate you. Uh huh. You're in the woods. I can't <laughs> yes. see you. Where because are you? Because there's no reason why Juliet would know that he's there. She's met him at the party. She's gone home and she's musing at the moon over her balcony. Unbeknown to her, he's listening and she's mm-hmm. asking the sky, why? Do you, why does he have to be Romeo? Of all the names mm. he could be, why is he a Montague? Of all the families in Verona he could belong to, why my enemy family? So yeah. it is uh, more of a kind of existential question, right. um, perhaps right. uh, not really about searching. It's an existential question that quickly transmogrifies into an ontological question. And those like, we'll, we'll unpack what these big words mean. But before we do that, let's remember where we are in the play. So the beginning of the play, we have these two rival families, the Montagues and the Capulets. And we meet Romeo, we meet Juliet. Romeo's coming off a heartbreak. Juliet is soon to be engaged or maybe even engaged to Paris. Her family has set up this match. And our star-crossed lovers, Romeo and Juliet, meet at a masked ball at the Capulet's house. And immediately they just fall headlong in love, beginning to complete each other's sonnets. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful setup. And at the close of the scene, and thus in the close of the act, Juliet and Romeo find out, oh my goodness, she's from that other clan. Oh, he's from that other clan. And we've got a perfect hook for the rest of the play. What is going to happen to this wonderful couple uh, when their families are just, have been warring since time immemorial? And this scene, act two, scene two, happens on a balcony. And we see Romeo kind of stealing, you know, over the, over the wall into Juliet's backyard. And Juliet walks out on this moonlit night and she begins speaking aloud, not knowing that Romeo's there. And then comes, then comes the famous exchange that we all know, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Okay. So I said, we shifted from an existential question to an ontological question. Ontology, listeners, is the study of being. It was one of the kind of like the big medieval categories of philosophy. And it basically just means, um, what is the nature of being? So the kind of question that they would ask is, is a human being fundamentally a bag of organs? Is that really what a human being is? Or is um, a human being uh, a, a soul incarnated? Is that like the ontology of a human being? So those are the sorts of questions. And we get into this fun little dispute, although it's a very romantic and playful dispute between Romeo and Juliet over ontology. And it takes the form of names. Is Romeo his name or is he something different, Heidi, uh, what is Juliet's answer? Is Romeo his name or is he something different? 
Right. Well, I think that's a really good question. And I think that that is one of the interpretive questions of the play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I think there's potentially multiple answers to this question. I mean, she begins this very, as you pointed out, this very famous section of the play with, oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? She begins with a question. She doesn't know, right? Why are you Romeo? And what mm. what does it mean to be Romeo? Are you this young man I've fallen in love with, or are you a Montague? Uh, can the thing, Romeo, be separated from the name Montague? This is her question. Mm. Are you ontologically a Montague? Can you ever just be a boy I fell in love with? Right. And, and yeah. that is the, that's the question of the play. And mm. in true Shakespearean fashion, I don't know if he ever answers the question. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's, I think, what makes this play a masterpiece. I think you could make the case that no, Romeo is a victim of this, uh, of, of being born a Montague. He's a victim of it, but he's really just himself, right? Separate yeah. from that. Yeah. But that's too easy, right? Because they end up, dead. It's not a comedy. It's a tragedy. They end up a Montague and a Capulet dead in a tomb at the end of the play. Their love is never brought to the fruition that they desire, right? Now, is this because of the problem? Is this because society sees Romeo as a Montague, but he never really was? What does it even mean, right? What does it mean to be a Montague or a Capulet? Like this, Mm. to your point, Tim, this is, I think, one of the major interpretive questions of this play, and part of what makes it such a masterpiece is that that we're given this contradiction. I desire to be separate from my name, and yet I am my name. Yeah. And I have a duty to my name. Are both of those things, are they societal questions? Are they questions of environment? Or are they questions of ontology, of being? The last line that we heard in the audio uh, Juliet asks, what's in a name? Mm -hmm. That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Uh, Sarah Jane, is she right? This is exactly the question that I asked my class when I taught them this. Is it really? Do you ask it about this, This these groupings of lines? Yes, I said, do you agree? Is she right? Because uh, along with what Heidi was saying, I think the other aspect to the big question of the play is, you know, what is the nature of language is the other question. Mm -hmm. Yes. Is Romeo just a word? And is it true? Would a rose by any other name smell as sweet? And, you know, we tried out in class a few different words. Mm. And because words have cultural implications, I suppose, because they belong to a whole sphere of reference, then it's not actually true. And it, it comes down to, I think, a kind of, some kind of theology of language. Like, what is the connection between a word and the thing that it signifies? Because if it is just arbitrary, then language is really very weak and doesn't mean very much. And if we take that view of language, I think we don't honor the gift of language that we have Mm. been given. So I think this is kind of sophistry from Juliet because she doesn't want it to be true. She doesn't want it to be the case that Romeo's name is inseparable from his personhood. And so she tries to put together an argument that might convince her. But as you say, it's not answered in the play. It doesn't seem to be true. Romeo says he will tear the word if he saw it written. At another point, he asks for a knife that he would cut it out of his body if someone could just tell him where the name was. And she asks him to doff his name and and he's willing to do it. 
But none of these things make any difference because Montague is his blood. Yeah. She says, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo, doff thy name. And for that name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. That's a big request. That's a really, really big request Mm. that she's making. And we talked last week about whether or not this play is a tragedy because of characteristics or personal failings. If we answer yes to that question, which I don't think we really are going to do, but let's just imagine that we're going to say yes to that question, that, that Romeo and Juliet, they're faulted characters, they're deeply faulted characters, and their ultimate demise has to do with this fault that they're going to discover during the play. Might this be the beginning of the moment where Romeo and Juliet, we see that they're naive. They're young. They don't understand. They just don't understand. Like you can't just disown your family. You can't just say, if I saw my name, I would, you know, I would tear up the paper and thus I would be, I would be different. I would just be here for you, Juliet. What do you think? I totally agree with that, Tim. And I think that's one of the reasons why Shakespeare gave us such young lovers in this play. Mm. And that that isn't the case in his high comedies, right? You don't have 13-year-old protagonist Rosalind or Beatrice or, you know, in his in in his comedy in, in general in the tragedies, you have more mature women, right? You've got Lady Macbeth. And so, but in this particular play, I think in order to add a naivety in order to communicate that these are lovers that are caught in something far beyond themselves, both love and duty and ontology and and fortune and all these other things that are bigger than them that sweep them along. Um, In order to explore that, he had to give us these young lovers, right? These, these inexperienced young children almost on that, in the cusp of adulthood, but not quite there. And, uh, you know, that's one of the big criticisms of this play, but I think it had to be in order to get to the complexity of the questions that he's raising. Yeah. I think as well that even though they're young and naive, Shakespeare has taken the Petrarchan model, which probably by the late 1590s is a bit tired and completely refreshed it and changed it. So I'm going to kind of take a long run up at this point, but it's important. I think that, you know, as we said last week, his Romeo's love for Rosalind is unrequited. It's a battlefield. It puts him in a state of confusion. He's lost. That's the Petrarchan archetype that he worships a woman who he can never get, get near. He can never have. Say Petrarchan. Can you tell us who, who, who is Petrarch? He was a poet in Florence in the 1300s. He's known as the father of the sonnet. He wrote a long sonnet sequence called the Canzoniere. I hope I've got that right, which are songs. It just means little songs. And he, he writes them for this woman called Laura, who's very beautiful, mm. who he sees in the market. Mm. And she's this peerless beauty. And the, the poems, the sonnet sequence is all about her and how unattainable mm. she is. And um, overall, it, what he's famous for in the sonnet sequence is he presents the kind of problems and the unfulfillment of earthly love and then reconciles them in the beauty and power of divine love. And so when your students say, oh, sonnets, yeah, they're usually about love, they're kind of right because that is where it originated. 
in Petrarch. He didn't invent the sonnet. It was somebody else called Giacomo Lentini, I think. But the person who really made them famous was Petrarch. And then, of course, they came across to England with Sir Thomas Wyatt, and then they're picked up by Spencer, Shakespeare, Sidney, and all the great Renaissance poets. But where I was going with this is that Juliet, of course, is not the Petrarchan woman who is untenable. She's the opposite. She immediately mm. requites his love. And in fact, we see her capacity for love perhaps is even greater than his. He doesn't even understand the depth of her passion yet. And so I find here with this naming a really interesting reversal because when a woman marries a man, she gives up her name. But Juliet's mm -hmm. asking him to give up his. And she's in fact- I never thought of that. I never thought of that. That's great. Yeah, she's in fact the one who asks him to marry her even. She's so astute and forward, if you like. It's, it's not Romeo's proposal, it's hers. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so that, that's an interesting reversal, I think. And then the other point that comes to mind here is that she says, so Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection, which he owes without that title. Mm. So of course the word perfect means complete. It means complete. And She's trying to argue that Romeo is complete without his name, which again, mm. is not completely true. Mm. And I know it's certainly true of young lovers that they, they do kind of fall in love with the name partly and say the name over and over as she's doing Romeo, Romeo. And it's a very, it's got a really lovely oral quality to it. So I find Juliet here being not dishonest, but just trying to kind of articulate the impossible by making false arguments to herself because she knows that no, she thinks that nobody's listening. Right. And suddenly right. she's pushed much further and much more quickly into this relationship than she ever expected because it turns out Romeo's there. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's a wonderful, one of the things I think that makes the scene work so well is that as an audience member, we know Romeo's out there. Mm we see her not knowing that Romeo is out there and we cannot wait for him to show himself. You know, it's, it's, that's dramatic irony, right? Like when the, the audience knows, even if it's not verbal dramatic irony, it's kind of like staged dramatic irony that we can't wait. We know that Romeo's there. We cannot wait for him to be shown again. It's like this scene, it's, the affection between the two of them. It's the quality of the poetry, which Shakespeare's always high, but here it's just on another level. It's the dramatic irony of knowing, not just knowing that Romeo is hidden and about to be discovered, but also just this sense of, of doom that's hanging over the stage, that they're, they're falling in love. These families are never going to allow this to happen. The scene is just really powerful. I want to talk about the a couple of lines from the close of this scene, and I want to know how to read this. Romeo, oh, wilt thou leave me so unsatisfied? Juliet, what satisfaction canst thou have tonight? Romeo, the exchange of thy love's faithful vow for mine. Juliet, I gave thee mine before thou didst request it. Um, that line, oh, wilt thou leave me so unsatisfied? It's very easy to read as, aren't you going to sleep with me tonight? Is that, a, is that just a modern reading or is that, do you think an audience in Shakespeare's day would have also understood that line that way? There's, I mean, there's, there is, there are certainly a lot 
of sexual innuendos in this scene and in this play in general. Right, uh, right. A lot of them coming from Juliet's nurse. She's like, she's body. She makes the most. She does sexual joke, Mercutio, uh, and he does too. It's that's an mm-hmm. interesting kind of. Um, I read a paper once. I didn't write it. I read one that compared Mercutio and the nurse in this particular area of sexual innuendo. And it was really interesting kind of side-by-side comparison. I think that, yes, that would have been right on the minds of listeners, right? Or audience members, of course. Uh, there's mm-hmm. there, there ought to be a lot of sexual tension in this scene. And that word satisfaction in medieval times still had that same kind of Mm. connotation that we have with it today. But Juliet deflects it, right? And she doesn't just deflect it. She reorients it towards marriage in another couple of lines as, um, you know, if your intentions be honorable, right? She's like, Mm. in in your intentions marriage, then we can talk about it tomorrow, essentially, is what she says. Right, right. Romeo's language, one more thing. Romeo's language, though, to Juliet does not have the sexual weight that his language about Rosalind does, certainly. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Because of the sacred imagery and the religious Mm -hmm. overtones, he says he'll be new baptized as if he's, he's going to be initiated into some kind of new religion when... And take on a new name. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The word unsatisfied and Juliet's reply, what satisfaction canst thou have tonight? Mm. I think we can read it, as Heidi was saying, in the sense of satiety, uh, Mm. to do with fullness, perfection, things coming to some kind of closure. And that's not necessarily physical, as you say, as Juliet reads it, because Juliet doesn't understand how Romeo can be so dense, I think, at this point. She's sort of saying, what do you mean? I've already given yeah. you my true love vow. I gave it to you at the outset. <laughs> how, how can yeah. you be asking me this? What more do you want from me? I've given you all of me. Take all of me instead of your name, she says. And, and then he says, well, well uh, you know, will you leave me so unsatisfied? So she's maybe thinking, this man is insatiable. Right, um, right. And so I think she's kind to him. She says, well, I would take it back in order to give it to you again, if that's what you want me to do. And she Mm -hmm. sort of submits to him, which I think is very Mm -hmm. beautiful because I think Mm -hmm. she shows herself superior in this scene. And Romeo is is unable to just to comprehend it or even to requite it, I think. She says, my bounty is as boundless as the sea. My love is deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have. For both are infinite. Mm. And Romeo's response is that he... He can't believe it. Almost, he thinks he's in a dream. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. she and she's so profound. Yeah, she really is. She really is. Every time I, you know, r- prepare for one of these podcasts, there's always a character always kind of arrives in a way that they've not arrived before. And I, I'm ashamed to say I've never paid close attention to Juliet before. And now that I am, she's really something. She's remarkable. You know, she, she is amazing. It's she true. really is. But I think that you come by that honestly, Tim. I think that this is a general inability to see past their love, which is like a character in the play, right? Their love, Romeo and Juliet's love. They are always linked together. And 
Romeo and Juliet as representing their love. And when you start looking at them as separate people, Mm. I think just as Sarah Jane's pointed out a couple of times, just so wisely, they're very, very different people in the, in the play. Their characters are extremely different. Romeo is swept along by love and eventually by fortune, right? But Juliet takes on an agency in both love and in the circumstances of her life, in the fortunes of her life. She she owns it. And there's something, man, Shakespeare just loved those strong women. And I, I love him for it because that was a long, long time ago. It was a long time ago. Heidi, you brought up Mercutio and the nurse. I'd like to talk about Mercutio in a second. We meet him in act one. Uh, we see much more of him in act two, scene three. It, it strikes me that both Mercutio and the nurse are, they're a little bit licentious. They're, they are the ones that are emphasizing the kind of like um, more physical aspects of Romeo and Juliet's relationship. And I, I think that's by design. In other words, I think that Romeo's kind of like contrasting, he has these higher thoughts. His mind is more and more as he dwells on Juliet, his mind and his heart are elevated. Um, And he is contrasted by his best friend, Mercutio, who is really wrapped up in just kind of like the carnal nature of being. His ontology is very sensual. And it seems to me like Juliet, likewise, her closest companion right now is the nurse. And the nurse is also kind of like doing what Mercutio does for Romeo. She's kind of, you know, she's really emphasizing just how Romeo is such a hottie. Wow. You know, like you should be excited to get with him. And she uses all these kind of carnal metaphors. So I, I, it, it strikes me that Shakespeare was deliberately setting up a kind of companionship of opposites in a way. Let's talk about Mercutio. Heidi, off the air, you made a really interesting comparison. Mercutio and Falstaff. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Falstaff for those of us who are, have not seen one of the great Falstaff plays. Yeah, Shakespeare has a track record of creating secondary characters that end up taking over a show, right? Falstaff is probably the best example of that. Shylock is another example of that. There's a character in a play that is so profoundly drawn and given such wonderful language and speeches and motivations by his creator, Shakespeare, that then that character comes in and and takes over. takes on a life of his own, is the most memorable character in the play, even though he's not a main character. And like I said, the greatest example of that by far is Falstaff in the Henriad series of four plays, history plays. And we're actually, I don't know when we are, but this year we're doing Henry IV part That's right. one, right? That's right. And yeah. You and I. Yeah. And I think I told you, if you don't put me on Richard II and Henry IV part <laughs> one, I am going to storm the castle. You're in, Heidi. I you're love in. love those plays. I love me some history plays anyway, but those two are just, just dazzling plays. Um, so Falstaff is the drunken, fat companion of young Prince Hal, uh, who is destined to be king, uh, not only he king, but one of England's greatest king. Right. Yes, right. Henry V. And 
Falstaff, his companion of his younger rebellious days, is a secondary character in the play that absolutely dominates the play. And every play that he's in, more Falstaff, that's what people want, right? And he's an incredible character. He's witty, but he also has these inner demons and these like this very profound impact on the play that has this incredible pathos to it. And we'll talk about it when we get there. But anyway, the point is that Falstaff is bigger than the play itself. Um, Every play that he's in, particularly Henry IV Part I. And that is, like I said, something Shakespeare's done a a few times. And then I think there's a couple times that he might try to do that and it doesn't succeed as Mm. well as, Mm. um, as it does in others. Falstaff, Winner, Shylock, winner, right? And I think Mercutio is an. You're not so sure about Mercutio to do that. And Mercutio is very memorable. He's very memorable, and he almost succeeds, but I don't think he does. I see. Um, can you say more about why you don't think that he succeeds? I just think that the most compelling character in the story is Romeo and Juliet's love. Yeah, and I think that Mercutio can't quite get there. Um, yeah, but. Shakespeare gives him these amazing speeches and this Mm. wit. In scene three, there's a turning point in the play. I mean, how many spoilers can you get for Romeo and Juliet, right? Mercutio dies in act three. Right, right, right. right. And and it is the turning point in the play. Um, And, you know, it could have been a comedy maybe up to that point, right? But then Mercutio and Tybalt's death change everything. But the point is, is that Mercutio, especially with the Queen Mab speech, which I really loved the point that that might have been intended for Midsummer. I love that. And then some of his banter with Romeo, he's one of the boys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of gives us this vision of Romeo, not as an abstracted lover, but as an earthy, you know, as one of the boys trolling the streets, picking up girls and drinking and making dirty jokes. And, you know, Mercutio represents that part of of Romeo kind of grounds us in that part of Romeo. And then also, and here's why I think Shakespeare was attempting to do that. There's this bit of pathos running through Mercutio of his, his feeling left behind and feeling tormented by feeling left behind and his loyalty to his friend, Mm. uh, Romeo, and how then because Romeo falls in love, he ends up kind of shunted to the sides and he ends up giving his life, right? And there's a great pathos in that. And I think that that might've been intended to be a dominant image of the play, but it just never is. Like, it's not something people hold on to, to the same extent that they do in something like Prince Hal rejecting Falstaff in, in part two, you know? So right. I don't know. What do you think about, about that, Sarah Jane? Do you, do you like that interpretation or do you think I'm missing something? No, I think I agree with that. It's it's right. I mean, the main reason I would say that he isn't able to take over the play is because Shakespeare has to kill him off early. And I, I would yeah. suggest that this is because Shakespeare as a young true. playwright just can't handle Mercutio for any more scenes. Um, and that if he gave him two more acts, he he might threaten to kind of topple the the yeah, love scene. As Heidi was the, saying, the, the he's too he's yeah. too big. He's too much. He's this Renaissance man. Um, he has every every best line. And it's Dryden, actually, who says Shakespeare showed the best of his skill in Mercutio and he said himself that he was forced to murder him in the third act to avoid being killed by him. So <laughs> there's, there's some truth in that, I think. Um, I'm interested in what you said about putting him alongside the nurse, though, in terms of their kind of puerile, promiscuous jokes. We just don't know enough about Mercutio to know uh, the kind of heights and depths of his passion and love and, and how mm. profound he is. The nurse, I agree. I don't 
have a lot of sympathy for because she doesn't seem to understand love and she quickly exchanges Romeo for Paris. And, and Juliet can't forgive her for that and neither can I. Yeah, yeah. So I think her, her jokes are more wholesome in the sense that what she really cares about is Juliet having a baby. And so there is at least a purpose. It's not just kind of promiscuity. It's about fruitfulness, whereas Mercutio isn't interested in that, I don't think. Right. 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 He seems to be almost trying to lure Romeo back, right? Like if I make Mm. enough kind of like dirty jokes and remind you how earthy and physical love is, then I might win you back from this kind of abstracted state that you're in. And then his attempts continually fail and he seems to kind of try to up the ante um, as he's doing it. So I can see that Shakespeare, to your point, Sarjane, is Shakespeare's, you know, I don't know if he is, I don't want to give him any motives here. I don't want to impute any motives to him, but there's so many opportunities to kind of fill out those missing pieces in Mercutio that the play isn't, either doesn't do, isn't able to do whatever, but it, it could have been, right? He could have been another false staff. And yet he just, he had to die for the sake of the plot. Um, and I can't tell if it's a failure or just a premature death. That's a great way of framing it. Is it a failure or a premature death? It kind of hurts when he dies. I'm just like, you know, oh, our listeners I mean, need to know. It's going to smart. Your houses, like, yeah. So anyway, we'll get there next week. We'll get there next week. It's a great, a play. Yeah. It's a great speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're going to die young in the middle of a yeah, that's the way you want to go. That's the way you want to go. One closing thought about Mercutio. I think it's really instructive that the scene that we've been talking about, scene two, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo, that scene happens directly after Romeo steals away from his friends, steals away from Mercutio. There's kind of like this separation that's beginning to happen. And, you know, just speaking as... as a man who used to be a young man, when you're leaving your friends and your friends are as fun as Mercutio and you're leaving your friends for a woman, like you might be, you might really like her. I remember (laughs) doing that a couple of times, leaving my buddy Chad. And I was like, wow, I really like this girl because I'm not hanging out with Chad by the railroad tracks. This is, (laughs) this is something, something's really happened here. (laughs) I want to, I want to, we meet another wonderful character in this act, who's going to play a really significant role in not just the marriage of Romeo and Juliet, but in the climax of the play. And that's Friar Lawrence. General impressions, Sarah Jane, of Friar Lawrence. And I'm going to follow that with a question. Why are there so few religious occupations in Shakespeare's canon? I mean, it's not as if he lived in some sort of an irreligious time, just the opposite. And I've been thinking, I'm kind of giving my question away before we get there. Let's just, let's just go with, what do you think of Friar Lawrence? What, what, what are your impressions about him? Well, he is a perturbing and intriguing character who I need to spend more time with, I think, because I don't have a full comprehension of him yet. The questions I have are, why does he as in the older generation who is Romeo's confidant and advisor, why does he in one breath tell him not to rush and then in the next orchestrate a marriage immediately Mm. the next morning and Mm. 
and, you know, provide the poison. And, you know, I, I don't understand fully that. I need to think it through more and maybe you can help me. Um, I think... So can I make a proposal for that? I don't want you to lose your thought, but I can, I can make a proposal for this and maybe we can come back to it. Does he see the opportunity to end the street warfare by getting this couple together? I mean, do you think that he, if he wants Romeo to wait at the beginning, does it somewhere occur to him after that admonition to wait and slow down? Does it occur to him, hold on a second, the favorite children of these warring families, if they actually got married, there's hope for the kind of like gang warfare that's tearing up Verona. Is that, is that a possible motive for him? He does suggest that, but it's a risk. I mean... He doesn't know what the outcome will be. And I don't understand why he would risk his dear charge, Romeo, who he seems to be a kind of mentor to, why he would Mm -hmm. attempt to do that. It just seems a bit too pragmatic. It doesn't fit comfortably, I think, with the character of the friar. And the other thing is he's a bit like sort of... um, that that monk uh, is it Geraldus Africanus, the one who's famous in the medieval period, who's who's kind of um, like an apothecary as well. And maybe mm. this maybe this was common, but the first time we meet him, he's sort of associated with all these poisonous drugs, <laughs> and that's what he's doing in his right. kind of in his monastery. And I I also find that quite intriguing that he's sort of playing with these deadly plants when we meet him. And so there's, there's a great deal to him and, and, and Shakespeare's created a fascinating character and the play sort of turns around him because he's so crucial to the plot. He's so crucial. Um, but he seems to give good advice and then not exactly to follow it. But then I do think if I was a friar and someone came to me and said, I need to get married right away, it's kind of your job. You just have to do it, don't you? It's not for you to say, well, no, I'm not going to marry you. It's far too soon. I think yeah. that in terms of your duty as, as a member of the church, you probably have to. And then the other thing that I wonder that might be going on here is that Shakespeare is carefully placing his religious character in a slightly different tradition. This is a Roman Catholic country, Verona. Um, we're, I think in Britain... At, by this point, a lot of the enmity and animosity is coming to an end. Um, so it's not quite as controversial as it might be. But he's, there's a safe distance here. This is Verona and it is a Roman Catholic monk. So if you know, he can be seen, I suppose, as slightly uh, questionable or having dark elements to his character. And then that would be my answer to your second question, Tim. Uh, that's why I think yeah. there aren't many members of the clergy in, in Shakespeare's plays. I think it would have been too dangerous for him. Right. With the queen as the head of right. the church, newly made, all the religious tensions are kind of symbolically united under Elizabeth I. In 1595, the Book of Common Prayer is published. This is like the new kind of liturgy for the new Anglican church. I just, I just don't think Shakespeare would want to go there with the master of the revels watching the plays. He could get on the wrong side of the monarchy very easily. That is exactly my answer. It's exactly totally. my answer, you know. It's yeah. just too risky. It's just too risky. And Heidi and I talked about Richard in Richard II, how Shakespeare, just by staying alive and staying on the stage as long as he did within the kind of historical circumstances of England at his time, he deserves a massive amount of credit 
just for staying on the stage and not making the wrong people mad. You know, man, he takes on political questions. He does, but with such dexterity <laughs> that you're like, yes. and he, he, know. he doesn't get thrown off stage. It's, it's, a, it's remarkable. It's remarkable political talent. Uh, Heidi, what do you think about Friar Lawrence? I, I think Friar Lawrence is like the most mysterious character in the play, like by a long mysterious. shot. And, oh, yes, exactly what Sarah Jane said, because it's, as Sarah Jane pointed out, the first experience that we get with him is, is that he is, he's growing stuff, right? He's messing around, as, as she says, with dangerous drugs, with plants. He's, he's a gardener as well as a friar, which I find really interesting. Uh, so his, his connection with gardening and with the earth, mm. and then also with his urging on Romeo toward the virtue of moderation, and yet agreeing to marry them in this extreme case, and in some kind, Tim, as you said, in some kind of attempt to bring some peace to Verona maybe, that right. maybe question mark, right? Like he's just a massive contradictions. And I, I think that that's really interesting to me, especially considering the language that Romeo and Juliet both use about their love, which is heavenly, right? Everything is so out in the stars. It's light imagery, light and darkness imagery. It's the moon. Uh, they both use religious language. The idea of their love being like a sacrament that rebaptizes them. Juliet actually just straight up calls Romeo the god of her idolatry. And yet we have a religious figure in the play who's connected with nothing but plants, earth, and moderation, right? And I find that absolutely fascinating. What is Shakespeare saying with this? Is he saying, follow the religious leader and become moderate because you guys are idolatrous, mm, mm. right? But he doesn't seem to have enough chops to stop them or redirect them towards any true wisdom here. And so that kind of undermines that point, right? So it's just, a, he's a very curious character to me. I find him, he's, he is, I, I, yeah, I find him to be I want mysterious. to just take us right to the end of the play really briefly while we're on the friar without giving too much away. The prince at yeah. the very end, when he's kind of passing judgment on all that's happened, and we won't go into that yet, says about the friar, we still have known thee for a holy man. And I think that's really interesting that the perception of him in mm -hmm. Verona is that he is, he is a holy man. And perhaps that does play into what you were saying about mystery, Heidi. And he's exonerated at the end of the play. The prince doesn't blame him. The friar tells everyone exactly what his involvement was. Um, so there's that added element of mystery as well, that he is not blamed in any way for the tragedy that happened. And he has a public yeah. sort of exoneration by the prince. It, he's operating within the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, and yet he's like a rogue agent. You know, he's like in the one hand, Sarah Jane, you mentioned like, you know, if Romeo shows up and wants to get married, part of the obligations of his office are to say, yes, let's make this happen. And yet he takes so many chances and he's kind of working behind the scenes, both to marry them, to kind of get them in the same room so they can be married. So, okay, maybe part of the mystery of Father Lawrence is this. He is being... I'm going to say he's being watched just to try to make my point clear in Hamlet. 
Hamlet is living in what is like kind of a police state. He returns home after the death of his father and he's the rightful heir and everybody is spying on him. Everybody is spying on him. And I wonder if Father Lawrence is in a similar situation. There is no one in Verona that is not aligned with the Capulets or the Montagues. Everybody's chosen a side. And so to just come out and say, hey, let's like let's post a wedding announcement on weddings.com and let's send out some engraved invitations and let's just have a big party. No, he can't do that. There's no way he can do that. So he's got to operate like a covert agent, a rogue agent in a way if he's going to fulfill the duties of his office. And maybe also if he is motivated by this, like ending this familial warfare, he's got to operate secretively to do that also. So maybe that contributes to this kind of peculiar sense that we get about Friar Lawrence that we can't really put our finger on who he is and what he's doing. I think that's insightful and I appreciate that. To me, I think the most mysterious thing about Friar Lawrence is his role like in the play in terms of thematics, mm. like the themes of the play. Mm. What is he there for? Is he, because we have this like very moderate, like he is not talking about God the same. He's a religious figure, but he's not talking about God and love the way that Romeo and Juliet are talking about their love. Right. So he's not coming at them with some kind of like rival, like your love is not as important as God's love and divine. Like he's just, he's growing plants and saying like, Hey, why don't you slow down and take it down and not you guys. Right. But then he actually enables them to marry. He marries them. So he takes an active role to your point, Tim, in in the in how the play turns out. He was the one who comes up with the with the potion right. to put Julia into this deathlike sleep, which has a very religious symbolism to it, right? But he is, he's a good man, he's a holy man. It's pointed out he's exonerated from any kind of responsibility or culpability. And yet he does not have the same spiritual presence in the play that you would expect right. from a religious figure in a play that uses so much religious language about love. Right. Yeah. And Very I well find said. that absolutely fascinating. Very well said. And I can't tell exactly what Shakespeare's doing yeah. with that. Yeah. And I, I like that. I think it just gives it a little bit of a question mark around it. Like every time I read it, I and to me specifically, my question is. Does Fire Lawrence validate their love as a good thing, or does Fire Lawrence provide kind of the the other side of the extreme? Is he the golden mean, mm. and and their love is an is idolatrous? Yeah, I, I don't dispute that their love is real. What I don't know if is if the play is commenting that that's a good thing or a bad thing, right? Friar Lawrence ought to shed some light on that, and he instead I think he makes that question more confusing. He understands. Mm. Romeo really well. I love that about him. So he knows that the love for Rosalind wasn't real. Mm. He does seem to know that. And he calls Romeo young waverer, which I think is so insightful because Romeo, of course, his name, mm. as we I said, means that. pilgrim and here's, here's a pilgrim straying from the path. Mm. He gives a, a wonderful image uh, at the end of Act 2, scene, or in the middle of Act 2, scene 5. He says... These violent delights have violent ends and in their triumph die like fire and powder, which as they kiss, mm. consume. So he compares Romeo really to something like a young soldier who is uh, too hasty in battle and basically blows himself up with his own ammunition. 
And what's really apparent, I think, is their number of times so far that their love has been associated with death. It's, it's just here right from the beginning. Juliet, in, in the scene we were looking at a little earlier right on the balcony, the she, she, she starts to talk about love and death and how she will kill Romeo, who's like a little pet bird, by loving him too much and smothering him. And so Fry Lawrence also sees that. So there's a dark and mortal tone to this. And he also says, he also tells us the end of the play, really. He says, therefore, love moderately. Long love doth so. Too swift arrives as tardy as too slow. That's a really difficult line. But when you think about what happens at the ending with the tomb scene and how Romeo arrives too late and the poison arrives too swift and everything is brought into a calamity, there's, there's a kind of prophetic nature to his speech, I think is what I'm trying to get at as well. Mm-hmm. Even in his description of the particular flower that he's mixing in his opening speech, he says, within the infant rind of this small flower, poison hath re- residence and medicine power. Like So even in this little herb that he's mixing at the top of, in his first appearance, we see both healing power and death like wrapped up together it's just well and maybe that's the comment though maybe that's the to your point tim i love that i'm so glad you said that maybe that's his wisdom about love is a strong maybe. Love. yes yeah maybe yeah right yeah that's great in his wisdom he's kind of or in his foolishness he lets that unfold rather than attempting to direct it, right? Yeah. And that's, he does, he does warn them. I, I do realize if someone comes in to a priest and is like, marry me, you have to, I, I don't know if his dissension from their extreme request of him is as strong as it could have been. Right. He could have said, no, I'm going to tell yeah. your parents. Yeah. Next week. So we'll do it officially. Yeah, yeah. Or like, I we'll won't do this yeah. for six months. <laughs> like you have to do some counseling, right? There's, there's, yeah. there's, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I realize this is a play. So he has to submit to that for the, for the plot to work. But Shakespeare doesn't do things without reason and motivation. Like even the smallest characters, even Peter in this, in this act, right? Little Peter has some kind of motive to him. And I think that about the friar, there's, he has such a big role in the play and his, his motives are benevolent and yet continually mysterious to me. He also really appreciates the beauty of Juliet. When he first sees her, Mm. he captivated in the same way that Mm. Romeo was Mm. Here comes a lady, oh, so light a foot will ne'er wear out the everlasting flint. A lover may bestride the gossamers that idles in the wanton summer air and yet not fall. So light is vanity. And that definitely has that sententious Mm. quality to it, Tim, as you were saying before we started recording, I think that there is something special about the friar's speech. And that's one moment in his speech, really, where he isn't talking in couplets. Right. Uh, he just appreciates the beauty of Juliet as she just kind of walks on the air mm-hmm. into herself. Mm-hmm. So much of the imagery of this particular act reminds me of Spencer. And I actually today mm. went back to my notes from the Circe conference that was in Louisville and Spencer's poem, his Ephthalmian. You're talking about Edmund Spencer, the, yes. the poet. Yes, who was a, a great court poet of, of Queen Elizabeth and an influence on Shakespeare, no doubt. Mm. 
I do wonder whether, I mean, Shakespeare was a better poet than Spencer, I think in, in some ways, especially when it came to sonnets, but there's so much Spencerian imagery in this scene, especially the balcony scene. I wonder whether there was some influence that Shakespeare yeah. had taken from Spencer. Right. Um, I, I want to say something about the language of this play, but I want to also just, I want you guys to be thinking, what should we be looking for in act three? We're putting a close on act two. So I want you to be able to tell our listeners, you know, what, what are the sort of things that we're looking for in act three? Um, but going back to the language, this play has multiple forms. So in every Shakespeare play that I'm aware of, there are two major forms of language, and those are verse and prose. And the difference in your book, if you're looking at a Shakespeare play, is that the verse will be left justified and the right side of the column of words, say of like one of Romeo or Juliet's speeches, will be a ragged edge on the right, but the, it will read in iambic pentameter. I think it's 11 syllables, um, to be or not to be, that is the question. 10, yeah. Um, so, but within this play, Romeo and Juliet, there is also the sonnet form, which we saw at the conclusion of act one, when Romeo and Juliet, they begin speaking to each other and they begin speaking in the sonnet form with each other. And then also Friar Lawrence speaks in heroic couplets. And he also speaks in, I'm going to, I'm going to say sentencia, but it's an Italian word that is, um, something like brief moral saying, something more like, like Solomon's Proverbs from the Christian Old Testament. So we not only get verse, which is the language of high-class speakers, prose, typically the language of lower-class speakers or like less educated speakers. We get the sonnet form. We get heroic couplets. We get sententia. And Shakespeare matches the characters with the kind of form that they speak. So when Friar Lawrence speaks, sometimes he sounds like he's giving a homily. He speaks in like the form of a homily. I think when the nurse speaks, she speaks, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys, I think she speaks mostly in prose because she's not one of the more educated, higher class members of the cast. Whereas Romeo and Juliet, highborn characters, they're going to speak in verse. They're going to, that iambic pentameter is going to show up in their lines. I don't know of any other play in Shakespeare's canon that has such a variety of different forms. Maybe there is, I just don't know what it is. Uh, Heidi and Sarah Jane, act three, what should we be looking for? There's, I mean, there's lots to look for. Look for Juliet. Um, here's what I'm going to say about this. Whenever I teach this play, I have the most rich discussions with my students when I ask the whose fault is it questions <clears throat> multiple times during this act. Um, I have kind of in my back pocket a handful of just really simple questions to unlock different thematic conversations about different you know, works of literature and whose fault is it is one of those, right? And, and I think that this act three is one of those plays that if you stop every few... <laughs> It's almost every few lines in this, in act three, whose fault is it that this thing just happened? Who's responsible for this? And I think that that unlocks 
so many rich conversations. And I find with my students that they get like really heated over this act because you don't realize how much you interpret this act based on whose faults you think these are until you hear a dissenting viewpoint, right? If you're like, no, this is Romeo's fault and you think it's not, you think it's Tybalt's, right? Mm. Then you get this like really rich conversation that goes to, I think, the heart of of so many of the thematic questions um, and explorations of this play. That's great. That's great. Sarah Jane. Yeah, I think another thematic uh, trope to pick up in the play is something we've spoken about already, actually, the imagery of light and darkness. Heidi first mentioned it. Oh, she does teach the torches to burn bright. Mm. Um, And in the second act, what light from yonder window breaks? Swear not by the moon, the constant moon. Yeah. So the speech that's coming in act three is Juliet's. It's often cut and the lights have gone out now and it's night and it is an amazing speech about maidenhood. And um, again, maybe we could look at a little bit of Spencer in conjunction with that. Mm. And I think what we need to bear in mind is, is what she says in that first sec, that second meeting with Romeo, the balcony meeting, she says, although I joy in thee, I have no joy of this contract tonight. It is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden, too like the lightning, which doth cease to be, ere one can say it lightens. And so she also has this kind of prophetic vision, I think, of their love being this blazing light that just goes out so quickly. And so when we read this speech in Act 3, we'll see more imagery of night and death in conjunction with new love, which I think is really interesting. Um, and then it's just, it's just such an important act. It's in terms of plot, it's so important. It's pivotal. It's the first day of Romeo's new marriage and he kills someone. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty high drama. And at that point, the plot, the, the forces of destruction are, there are no brakes on the train. It is right. flying down the tracks and who's going to stop this? Like cool heads cannot step in and prevail. It's just, we know that doom is rapidly approaching. How is it going to arrive? And who is going to like fall in its wake is just kind of the only question. Again, the stagecraft of Shakespeare is so extraordinary. Like sometimes it's easy to lose, lose track of what a great stage master he was. He knows how to create drama and he knows how to create conflict. And it's sometimes overshadowed when you read Act Two, Scene Two of Romeo and Juliet, which is just filled with the most like lovely, voluptuous, illuminating language. It's easy to forget. Sometimes he's also just like just a brilliant stage master. And we're gonna sure. see the stagecraft in full display in Act Three. True. Hey, I want to thank both of you for being on the show. Heidi, I want to recommend that you have plenty of firewood that there are- And toilet paper. And toilet paper, (laughs) considering that you guys, it's predicted, are going to get five feet of snow in Colorado tonight I just, well, it's supposed to start tomorrow night. I- I can't believe, I mean, I will keep you posted. Five feet just seems That's, so immoderate to me. I'm like very fire alarms about it. Why don't you just calm down? <laughs> I, I can't hardly believe we're going to get that much snow, but maybe we will. So, but I, would I do love have it if my the governor took the took to the airwaves and just, you know. That's enough. <laughs> this is immoderate. That's enough. Right. 
yeah, no, that just seems just ridiculous to me, but it's Colorado. We can always use the moisture and I've got groceries and an immoderate amount of paper towels and toilet paper. And I got the wine and the cheese and the books. So I'll be fine. <laughs> Sarah Jane, any pending natural disasters that we should know about in Great Britain? Uh, always. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's some tidal waves about to break here, I think. That was mysterious. <laughs> what a mysterious thing to say. Maybe you'll maybe you'll clarify that when we all get together to record Act Three. I want to thank everybody for listening. As always, you can join us on the Close Reads discussion page on Facebook. Close Reads is the kind of mothership podcast. And a lot of the discussion for the plays the thing happens on that format. And as always, that's the easiest way to reach uh, myself, Heidi, and even Sarah Jane, though she is a conscientious dissenter from Facebook. We'll make sure that we <laughs> get her message, your message to her <laughs> if you have questions or comments for her. Uh, I want to thank all of you for joining us and listeners. Please continue to pay attention to the closing songs. You're going to recognize most of them. And if you can name the songs without... Uh, any sort of like reference to, I don't know, a YouTube search or anything like that, you're going to get extra bonus points. Please give us your song titles and artists on the Facebook page, and we will be delighted by the time we reach Act 5. As always, uh, thanks for joining us, and happy reading. We were both young when I first saw you. I closed my eyes and the flashback starts. I'm standing there. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.